Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. To be basically a sole proprietor or a single person LLC, you've got to understand, if I go out and I charge this two or $300 and fix their car, that two or $300 doesn't go in my pocket. It goes in my business bank account that then has to pay for insurance, service information, gas, scan tools, any tooling. There's a whole lot of costs that are associated with a business that if you make five or $6,000 in a month, sure, that sounds good until you realize that at least half of that is probably gone to things that are business calls. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. With me tonight is Jake Barnes of Automotive Diagnostics and Programming. Jake has a YouTube channel, is a mobile diagnostic tech, and uh, all-around pretty cool guy. So he's agreed to uh, come on this little podcast and be a guest. So um, we're going to get to know Jake. So Jake, how are you, man? Doing good. Good, good, good. So you just got back from vacation, you were saying, uh, just off air? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good times. Yeah, that's uh, I haven't I I I managed to get down to Lucas's at the on the fourth. That was my uh, that was my little vacation. But I haven't taken really any other time off this this summer. So it's um, it's starting to wear on me. It's a lot of long days between working and then doing the podcast at night. It's it's long. I'm starting to feel like uh, like I'm burning the candle at both ends. But I'm not complaining. <laughs> yeah, good thing, but. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever you're doing, you know, just your normal tech role, that seems like that takes up a majority of your day. And then you throw in uh, some content creation in there and oh my God, you have no time well, yeah, for and, anything. And I shouldn't really complain because like I just do the interviewing, right? I set up the interviews and Lucas and does all the editing and, you know, David is involved as well. And you, you do your own channel, shoot your own footage do your own editing, I yeah. assume. So, I mean, I shouldn't even be complaining because you guys are all working harder than me. So, how's the YouTube channel doing? 
Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, been going right at a year now, yeah. pretty much. And it's grown faster than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. But I'm still a little channel, like still yeah. a little tiny channel. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's not necessarily always about the size of the channel, right? It's a, like, I like yours. Your content's always very professional. There's, you know, and everybody out there that I follow is probably does good stuff, right? Good quality. But yours is, um, I don't know how to say it. It's, it's, you're, you do an excellent job of explaining what the, the, the theory behind what we're watching, which, you know, for, for some of us established guys is, is still good repetition, but I find yours and, and Paul's are both very good at, uh, you know, explaining the why, you know what I mean? Instead of just, yeah. here's what I did to fix the car, you know, like that's YouTube's got enough of that, but you guys are, you guys are killing it with the why. So. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't really care about fixing a car. I just always want to know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. How do you find the, um, do you get a lot of the detractors on, on, on YouTube people that just like the trolls, I'll say like that, just like stop making it so, you know, complex and just tell me how to fix it. Do you get that? Actually, no, I'm, I'm really been surprised that I think I got like 6,000 subscribers now and almost every video I do, I get between four and 5,000 views in like say the first 48 hours or so. Yeah. And I get probably on average about a hundred comments a video or something like that. And it is actually pretty rare that I get a negative comment. That's good. I'm really surprised at it. I figured I would be getting trolls left and right. And I probably will now for saying this, but (laughs) I've been really lucky and, uh, I don't get a whole lot of trolls. Yeah. I can actually only think of one. He wasn't even a troll. He just, he thought he knew what he's talking about, but he really didn't understand what I was doing in the video. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he pretty much told me he wasn't going to watch my channel anymore. Whatever. I mean, yeah. if you don't understand what I'm doing, you know, you're criticizing me for what I'm doing, but you don't even know what I'm doing. And then you're going to tell me you're not even going to watch it. That means you're not really there to learn to begin with. And it was on one of my short videos. So it's not, I don't even really care about those. I'm I'm terrible at making short videos. So yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a, this channel or the podcast just got a channel. And, um, in the last two weeks, and so far, I'm not filming anything other than just these podcasts, right? And then the reels and the shorts are just that, right? They come from it. Yeah. Somebody mentioned to me at AST last year about, well, when are you going to start filming some content? And I'm like, you mean besides like talking? Never. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested in showing people how I fix a car because whatever the respect that people might have for my ability would be gone within about the first 10 <laughs> seconds because they'd be like, this guy's a professional. He does this for a living. Like, yeah, I, uh, I've said, yeah. I've said before sometimes that like how I get to the solution sometimes it just amazes me because it's just, it's so much intuition, right? It, I don't, I don't have a, I mean, I have a process, but if you think that I like am diehard, right? 
never deviate from the process, you'd be crazy. I rely so much on see you know intuition and just gut instincts that I should never be instructing anyone else on how to fix anything. <laughs> just don't do what I do. So, well, I mean, sometimes those that, that intuition is kind of just more or less because you already kind of know the mechanics of whatever it is you're working on. So it's not, it's not like you're taking any kind of shortcuts or anything like that. It's, it's literally like just you already haven't experienced. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's been, been my, my saving grace is because it's just, I tell everybody, I stare at that scan tool way longer than I should just going through pages and pages and pages, right. Looking for something that jumps out at me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, does, does it always work? No, but I mean, it's like, I, I found that if I spend sometimes 20 minutes doing that before I ever, you know, rack the thing and, and like start tearing into something just well, willy nilly, I save so much time on the back end because I find that it's, it's so much you can see, you know, if you see a PID that's just totally out to lunch, you know what I mean? Then you can get a grasp yeah. of, okay, well, what is it supposed to look like? What do I remember when that's been open before, right? When it's been unplugged, what have I? Okay. All right. I remember that number. Cool. It's unplugged. And I immediately just like know to go there. I don't have to take out other, you know, unplug this and unplug that. I just need to go right to there. And sometimes that's really saved my bacon. But, you know, it frustrates some people because they're like, you're still sitting there staring at that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of do the same thing. Like, yeah. Uh, yes, let's see, say Sunday. Uh, Friday, I had just a quick mobile call to just a random customer's house on a car. They put a throttle body on it and still had throttle body codes. And I go out there and I scan it and I'm just looking at the data PIDs and I see uh, TP1 and TP2 are both high like mm-hmm. four and a half five volts yep. and i just unplug the connector and i can see a little dimple in the connector end and take a little mirror and look up in there in the connector of the throttle body and see a pin bent over and yep. i'm like well hey there's a pin bent over so yeah which had just been so, yeah I mean, somebody did it when they installed it obviously or maybe it came out of the box like that you don't know right but I, I would assume it being an aftermarket throttle body, the pin was probably tweaked just a little bit. And when they stuck the connector on, it just folded yeah. it right on over. Yeah. So, yeah. I liked, uh, I just saw your video there with the Ford Escape with the TPS that was causing the issue there. The one, uh, I think you said they had, they'd swapped the throttle body and the TPS that came on it was bad. It wasn't reading. Like it was stuck at like, one bolt oh, or something. That, no, that the one that was a no start when I first got there. That's yeah. And then I think you Yeah, no, that was all original. It oh, was okay. original to it. But yeah. I'm I'm almost positive. And I didn't even think about it whenever I was doing it, but when I went back through and I was like editing that video, it kind of like dawned on me that hey, I bet this thing was stuck at wide open throttle. At least the the swiper on the potentiometer was basically stuck at wide open throttle and then i probably without even realizing it pressed the pedal and broke the yeah the thing all the way off in there or something you know and then it was a crank yeah and start and run and but because we yeah, forget about that, that. Was a, like lots of people i worked with they forget that if it's seeing a wide open throttle it won't normally start right like it mm-hmm. just allows it so yeah 
so I got to ask how long, like, did you start doing the, the YouTube thing shortly after going mobile? I was like basically in a transition from like, I was working at an independent shop. I took two months off to go to Colorado because my girlfriend was out there working last summer too. So I went out there for the whole summer while I was gone the shop shut down so whenever i got back there wasn't anything for me to do so i was like you know what i'm gonna do my whole mobile thing and then it was just kind of like one of those things where like i love watching all these other guys do diagnostic videos and i really just i ran out of people to watch i was Mm -hmm. like you know i get some pretty interesting things because almost i'd say at least 80 to 90 percent of what i work on is auction cars and we all know auction cars or yeah you know you never know what you're gonna find with them you have no history to them so they were always fascinating cars to me to work on so i was like well i mean these would make good content because i have no history i have no thing of like well this person done this to it well i maybe should double check this or something like that so everything was kind of fresh and and interesting so Mm-hmm. That's kind of just what got the ball rolling on that. Okay. So you said you were at an independent shop and it closed mm-hmm. down. So can you give us a little bit of your kind of your, your career history? Like how did you start into this? Career history. I, for the majority of my electrical career, I've either done uh, residential and commercial wiring or I've done automotive wiring as far as remote starts, alarms, keyless entries, stereo systems, that kind of stuff, aftermarket stuff. And you really never understand how many times people will bring a car into a stereo shop to have a wiring problem figured out. Mm -hmm. And probably my first taste of actually digging in and figuring out what was wrong with a car that somebody else couldn't figure out was actually like, uh, this was in probably 2014 or so. It was a fairly new, it was like either 15 model or 16 model Tahoe or something, or let's see, no, let's see. It's been about 15 or 16. It's like a 14 model Tahoe is, is the new body style Tahoe. And we had done a overhead entertainment system, like TV and stuff for kids and whatnot. And, the they had an issue with a battery battery drain problem and the dome lights not working so they took it into the chevy dealership that they bought it from they go well it's got all this aftermarket stuff in it all that has to be took out blah 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 so they brought it back to me i unhooked everything i'd already checked it made sure it was nothing that we had done and so sent it back to them and they go we don't know what's wrong with it. Like things just don't work. And so they're like, you got to completely take this stuff out instead of just unhooking it. I'm like, what difference does it make? It's unhooked. It's not connected to anything. It's just a TV screwed to the headliner basically now. Yeah. So they brought it back to me and I, they was like, here, this is the service manager guy's name and phone number down there. He said, we can call or whatever. So I called him and was like, Hey, can you just send me the wiring diagrams for the things that run the Dolmots? Because the Dolmots still wasn't working. And he's like, yeah, sure. So he emailed them to me. And I basically just kind of 
went through the diagram and found out that the body control module itself was not outputting anything. Okay. This one that has kind of a, a smart turn off kind of thing. And I basically just even unhooking the battery, hooking it back up, that should reset anything like that, but it would still not output. I still had a battery drain of, I think like one or two amps. I can't remember. It's been a long time. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, I'm pretty sure this body control module is just bad. And so I called him and told him and he's like, well, send it back down here. We'll double check. If we find the same thing you found, we'll put a body control module in it. And they did. And it fixed it. They, they brought it back and let me put everything back together. And, uh, that manager was like, you know, if you ever want to do this, give me a call. Would love to have somebody that's capable of doing electrical. And, but it was like that dealership was like an hour drive away from me. And I hate driving, right? <laughs> which is all I cause I'm a mobile mechanic or diagnostician. Now. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I, I hate driving for work. So I was like, no, it's just money sounds good, but. I don't want to drive an hour there and an hour back every day. So, yeah. I, uh, so I just kind of let that go by. And uh, a couple of years later, my boss was buying a lot of auction cars and reselling them and things like that. And I was always having to fix some stuff. And they brought, he bought a, uh, I think it was a Expedition. It was a Ford I know that as a three five non non turbo is just a three five motor, or maybe a V eight. I can't remember. It's been a long time, mm -hmm. but had a dead miss on one of the cylinders and a rattle when you started it up. And so uh, he basically was like, "Hey, you want to take this thing apart and figure out what's wrong with it?" I was like, "Sure, whatever." So I took it apart. The chains were loose as hell, so put new chains in it. And while I had it apart. I was trying to figure out what the misfire was and it was just a, a no compression on one of the cylinders and I got to looking and uh valve spring was just broke. So put a valve spring in it, put time chain, water pump and all that stuff back in it and fired up and it ran and a buddy of mine that kind of helped me make sure I had the timing correct when I first put it together. He worked mm -hmm. at a Chevrolet dealership and, uh, He's basically was like, why don't you just come work with me and you can do this stuff all the time. And they kind of made me an offer. And my boss even was like, it's a pretty solid offer. I'd probably take it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of how I got started. And that was um, December 2017. That's mm -hmm. whenever I got that offer. To go to the Chevy dealer. To go to the Chevy dealer, yeah. There you go. So I, I was at a Chevy dealer for four years, I think, and went to an independent shop and was there for almost two years, and, uh, and that's when they shut down. So yeah. So that what did you, how did you find that going right from your background at the uh, I'll call it like a stereo shop or you know yeah to to walking into a dealer was that a big difference. Uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty intimidating at first. I knew they were wanting me for ma mainly electrical. Yeah. Because they didn't really have anybody that done electrical that much. 
And whenever I got there, though, it was not really a whole lot of electrical. It was like one of my first big jobs was actually doing a motor swap in a Buick Regal is a the 2.5 liter turbo. Yeah. And uh, that's like a drop the cradle. Everything comes out the bottom kind of thing. Yeah. So that was like one of my first big jobs. I think that was in the first month I was there. So kind of got just thrown in there and they're like, yeah, hey, you'll figure it out. So, and I did, I, I figured it out, but. Yeah. How was the, how was the pay different? Was it like, were you, I'm going to assume you were on flat rate. Actually, no. Whenever I first started, I didn't want to be flat rate. I told him, I was like, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I've never worked on flat rate. My buddy is like, you know, you'll make good money on it, you know, but they understood that I had Mm -hmm. almost no mechanical training at all. I I was good with electrical, but there was still a lot of electrical stuff that I still needed to learn. Yeah. So the, uh, the deal was, is when I first started, they'd put me on hourly. And so I was, I was straight hourly and the whole time it was like, you've got to be doing your training, you know, your online training, whatever, get some of your stuff figured out that way. And, uh, you know, in a couple of months, we'll talk you into talking to you about flipping to a flat rate. So I was like, okay, whatever. So I think I was only on straight hourly for, I probably wasn't even on it for three months. Okay. And they were like, okay, you're, you're doing enough for where you can, you need to flip to flat rate. And I was like, well, whatever, whatever, I'll do it. And part of the deal was, was like even my training time. So like on a GM, when you're on, uh, what would they call that thing? It's been so long. I can't even remember what they call their, their online classes, but each one of them had a, a time set that like an estimated time of how long it would take you to do yeah. the course. So if it was 15 minutes, they'd pay me the 15 minutes. If it's an hour and a half, they'd pay me the hour and a half. So I basically, while I was still learning and doing not, I wasn't turning a whole lot of hours in the shop. I could, mm-hmm. you know, in the afternoon go through my training courses and I had a ton of them. Yeah. I could knock out like, an extra 20 hours in a week just in that. So yeah. that's but pretty, that helped a lot. That's pretty fair of them really. Cause I mean, like I've, I've never worked at a dealer yet that paid you for the online training that you took. Not one. Yeah. That, so that, if it wasn't for that, I probably would have sunk real fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's a dealer by dealer policy, right? Like I don't think, mm-hmm. I don't think it's written by the OEs that you must pay. And if it is, I'm sure there's lots of dealer principles that ignore that. But like that was, I got to say that, you know, sometimes we get a lot of guys on here and they're ripping on dealers. Uh, I've, I've been known to do it too, but I mean, that's pretty commendable and that's awesome because uh, it, it obviously kept you paid and it kept you motivated yeah. to, to learn. Right. That's the, that's the whole thing here. Like well, that was, that was part of the reason why they done it. Everybody in the shop got paid for their training and but like most of them wouldn't do it and it it was kind of sad it's like i mean that's that's pretty much free money yeah and a lot of them wouldn't do it we had a we had a big problem with training 
because with GM, you need to have so many guys 100% trained in each category, basically, to keep your numbers happy with GM and whatever. They basically keep the warranty people off your back. That's right. And the guys just wouldn't do it. So I went from me being brand new to within probably six to eight months. I was one of the highest trained people in the dealership or in the service department, at least. I think there was only like two other guys in there that had more training than I did. And there was at that time, probably uh, six to eight of us back there. I Mm -hmm. think. What was the resilience for them not wanting to train? Did they not want to get that more complex work or? Not really. They were more, I guess, just hard headed. And it's like, you know, I spend all my time here in the shop. I'd rather turn hours here in the shop than do some of this training. And when I go home, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. That was kind of the, the general theme, I guess, of everybody in there. Hmm. That's weird because there was lots of times if you just said there's, you know, an oil change waiting for point four, or you can do a training course for, you know, point four. I take the training course every time. Why would you not? You don't get dirty. Well, we had an oil change rack, so yeah. we had dedicated oil changers. So anything that come back in the shop had at least a line on it for something else okay. that you could turn hours on. Yeah. Yeah, that's different than what I've been through because a lot of the places that I've been at, if it was an oil change and something else, it got dispatched to anybody in service. And if it was an oil change only, then it got dispatched to just the dedicated quick lube kids. But if they got backed up, like which would happen a lot, they just flog them to anyone. So you'd get like, yeah. you know, high high paid techs doing 0.3 oil changes, right? which were already at a menu price since they were losing money on doing them. It was ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that would happen, but not, not too often. A lot of times, like even if like I got a ticket that had an oil change on it and then some other thing, most time it would actually run through the oil change rack first. Okay. And have that done and then brought back to, to one of the techs to finish out the ticket basically. So did you like GM? Uh, I like GM. I think GM is really good as far as I like their diagrams. I like their information. They have how their service information is laid out. It's pretty easy to navigate yeah. compared to some of the others. Yeah. So I liked it. I, I did. I liked it a lot. I've looked at a little bit of it. I I find it's it's good. I haven't seen the Ford OE stuff, so I can't really comment on that. My all my years at Chrysler, right, is like it's like second nature for me to navigate it. I find it very user friendly. Mm-hmm. Nissan is the worst I've ever seen. It, it is, it, isn't it terrible? It makes no sense. Oh, it makes God. you jump around like it's there's no logic to it. It's literally like my service manager at the time told us, Well, you got to remember, right? It was written for you know in Japanese and then translated and but even the layout of it is so stupid i you'd be here one section of it for a wiring diagram but a pinout would be in another section like a pinout a connector mm-hmm. pinout and i'm like that just makes no sense because chrysler it's literally like i could drag click look at the connector right go back to the wiring drag click look at the connector 
Nissan couldn't make that work. Like it was, we at the dealer, we had a Identifix on the same PC and more guys that had not grown up with the, with the Nissan stuff that you were using redrawn diagrams on Identifix because it was just faster to navigate that than the fact than to navigate the OE stuff, which is great until there's an error, right? In the redrawn. And then you're really down a wormhole, but you know, yeah, I, I, I needed it. I guess Dan Nissan's like <laughs> they're the worst to try to work on. Yeah. Like I, I get the question all the time, like which cars do you not like working on? Cause I do a lot of European stuff and they always expect it to be European. No, it's, it's always easily Nissan. Yep. Nissan is the worst. Yeah, it is. So. It is. I worked there for two years, over two years and I never got, never got comfortable with it ever. Like, I mean, I worked at Hyundai before that and that was easy. Like it was like just changing a different yeah. pair of pants on Nissan. I, I like, I like Hyundai Kia's yeah. service information. I like how, like if you're looking up something, say like a alternator mm-hmm. code, like it'll give you actually like some oscill- oscilloscope patterns yeah. on almost all of it. Yeah. So like even, you know, if you use the scope, like I do a lot, it makes it really easy. Like, yeah, my pattern looks like this, mm-hmm. so it's good. Yep. Or this is a bad pattern. Well, my pattern looks like that. That's is bad. So yeah. I do I do like that. Yeah. I tell everybody if you're gonna buy if you don't have money to buy like a Toyota or a Honda and you're set on buying an Asian, uh don't buy a Nissan. Buy like buy buy a Kia Hyundai. Yes, you're gonna get one with, you know, you're gonna save a lot of money. You're gonna need the money for the repairs. But I mean, I yeah. just I find that you, you, you don't need it for when the, the engine makes a uh, window. Yeah. But I mean, you know, if you buy a Nissan, the CVT is gonna make a window. So Yeah. You know, what are you gonna do? Like it's just that's what they do. But uh yeah, I I that's hats off to the guys like yourself that go you know, jumping for brand to brand. Cause I mean, like I, I stay completely away from Euro if I can at all help it. Like I just, you know, I'll do the undercar stuff on it, but the, the Diag and stuff just doesn't, I don't know. I went there years ago and tried it and I just was like, no, this isn't for me. It's not comfortable. No, I I find it to be challenging mm-hmm. and I like challenges. Nissan is challenging, but just in a stupid way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Euro, you look at the European stuff and you're like, why? Why do they do it like this? There's no, it's just like redundancy after redundancy after redundancy. Mm-hmm. Nissan is stupid because it's just stupid. It makes you go in circles, right? And it doesn't. It does. But Euro is just redundant. And that, the redundant thing gets gets me frustrated. It makes me just like, because I feel like all the time, like I'm wasting time. I'm getting farther and farther behind because of this redundant thing. Nissan yeah. is just like, it's so stupid. Like it just, you know, I mean, with Nissan, you get a U1000. Yeah. And that's it. Like, yeah. oh, no modules telling on another module. Like, yeah. it's just a U1000. Figure it out. It's like, yeah. And their AC systems are so stupid. Like, every, it's just, they can't, they couldn't have made that system more dumb without, and that's, I used to curse because I'd be like, everything in a Nissan that we working on it was like in a module, just like you said, but there'd be nothing on the scan data. You're like, mm-hmm. well, can I look? No, it's just a dumb module. I mean, it's it's sending stuff back and forth, but I can't I can't look at pits. Nope. No. So like dumb. I, I, I may be wrong, and and I could be just completely wrong, but 
I still don't think Nissan has live misfire counters, do they? I'm trying to remember now how we would do that. Because I, I know on, on my, my scan tools, like if I go into generic, it's yeah. supposed to give me like a, a live, but it is never, never works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. On the OE tool, I know we could count on some models. You could see it. But uh, if it was like an older one, there was no chance. You had to wait for it to give you a code or go do it the old school way, right? Like it was not, there was yeah. no life that thing. Kind of like the Honda does that too, though. I got to say that some of the older Hondas are, their misfire monitor on the aftermarket tool is pretty inefficient. Yeah. But yeah. So what you got out of the dealer and went to an independent, mm-hmm. how, how did that happen? While I was at the dealer, I basically kind of just got pretty frustrated with labor times, the amount of warranty work, um, things just getting cut left and right. And then just so many recalls that were just programming recalls. Yeah. It doesn't pay anything. They pay three tenths to reflash a module. Yeah. And like, as I, I think like, in two months, I think it was, they basically had a recall for the reflash of brake module for uh, basically the vacuum pump going bad and losing or getting a hard brake pedal. So they made a software update for the EBCM to kind of help counteract that right. issue. And when they made that, they actually broke something else in there. So like a month or two later, you basically had to redo all of those under a new recall. And, you know, like when you got hundreds of these things coming in. Yeah. Like it, there was at least one week or all week. All, that's all I done was reflashes. And it's just aggravating. And you, you can't so, do it in three times, can you? Like That's not a realist. I'm. not really no yeah if if the car was already in your bay yes mm-hmm. but having to go pull the car get it in yeah you know do that uh and at that time gm was also really pushing dealers for inspections so they were also wanting inspections mm-hmm. which you definitely can't do in three tenths especially while you're trying to set up a programming event mm-hmm. and everything so, and those are we wouldn't get paid for. Their their thought was, you know, if you sell something off of it, you know, that pays for you to do, you know, that that kind of BS. Yeah. So, so they were really pushing inspections on all these things, and it's like, you know, I just looked at this truck, the same truck, two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Let me copy paste all this. Yeah. But so I, I ended up getting pretty tired of it and we had actually lost some people out of our parts department Mm -hmm. so i was like let me go to parts so i talked them into let me go to parts i went into parts for a while and then covid hit and i i ended up getting like furloughed for probably like two months okay with the covid stuff Yep. So it was nice for me, but whenever I came back, our sales were basically still kind of trashed 
And even though my numbers were still pretty good, they were like, you know, this ain't working out. You can either go back in the shop or you can deliver parts. I'm like, so deliver parts? No. Because... <laughs> It was going to be a pay cut too. It was, yeah. like, it was going to cut me down to like eleven seventy five an hour or something wow. to deliver parts. I'm like, so they were basically trying to force me back into the shop. Yep. And I was like, no, mm-hmm. I'll just go home. Yep. So, so that's what I did. I basically just quit, and it wasn't. But like two days later, I was already in an independent shop working. So, mm-hmm. so it wasn't that big of a deal. And and really, like, that was probably one of the best things as far as career-wise I ever done. Because when I was at GM, I was, you know, GM trained and whatnot. But I really didn't know a lot of what I know now. Right. And the only way is because once I went into the independent world, is when I actually started finding out about, you know, all these online people like Paul Danner and yeah. uh, Mario and mm-hmm. all those other guys. So that's when I really kind of started to take off as far as like, oh, this is how you're actually supposed to diag this. Yeah. So. Yeah. Because the dealer life is different, right? I, I I say it all the time. You've got, like we were talking at the scan tool earlier, you get so familiar with what normal looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And sounds like and feels like, and then pattern failures. Yeah. Like, and then you have. I, I used to joke all the time. I had a normally just a known good caravan sitting in the bay right next to me. So I mean, if I needed a, like a map sensor or a, a TPS or something just to try, I could grab the whole throttle body in, you know, four minutes, have it bolted on, swap, drive it outside, come back to, on the test drive. Yep, okay, fixed. Order me, you know, throttle body. It's just an example, like. When you go, yeah, when you go into the aftermarket side where it's all makes and models, you can't do that. I mean, you might get lucky and there's two out in the lot, but even still, you don't know the condition of the second one, right? And it could be, yeah, yeah, they both could be broken when they get a few more miles on them, right? But Mm -hmm. yeah, we've been very lucky with the the YouTube. There's so many people that like it. I don't want to say it saved their career, but it really helped them, you know, fill in the gaps of maybe... What like like you were saying the OE training, you know, left, and then you see a guy like Mario, like you said, Paul, or you know Keith Perkins, or like Brandon Steckler, or on, any of these guys online, Cody, like you know all these guys that are next level doing it right, and you're like, wow, there is a there is yeah. a method to this, right? Of of how you make it seem more and more in common, and you don't get stressed about the fact that it's a different brand, but. Yeah, yeah, it, it like, saved, um, saved my butt. When when I was first getting into the dealership, it's about the same time that GM basically mandated everybody, all the dealerships have a Pico. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever used it. It was always like in the tool room, stuffed yeah. away somewhere. Nobody even knew it was there. It's crazy. But I remember I was taking one of the online classes that was specifically for the Pico. And I was like, man, this thing can do a whole lot of cool stuff. Like, you know, this thing can do ignition diagnostics and it can do in-cylinder diag, like valve timing. What? Like, 
this is, this is all like just mind blowing to me. Yeah. And it's like this tool's just sitting in there, not being used. Yep. Why? And that was pretty much it. Like I, I'd done that class, that online little training thing. And I kind of had to learn it a little bit for um, a, a torque converter shutter recall or yeah. service bulletin. I can't remember what they did for the Colorados and the basically the eight speeds. So I kind of learned a little bit about it having to do that because I was the only guy in the shop at the time that was 100% transmission trained. Mm-hmm. So they basically kind of shoved me all those tickets. So I would have to go out, drive all of them, and get a Pico waveform for the vibration on all of them to be able to send in for warranty. And um, so I kind of learned a little bit about it doing that. And then once I left and got into the independent world, I was like kind of doing some stuff. And then I I can't remember even what it was I was working on at the time, but I, I kind of was looking up videos on like how to figure this out mm-hmm. and come across Mario's using Pico scope and other things. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get me one. So I bought me one and started using it and watching more videos and learning all this other stuff about it. So they really, really helped me a whole lot as yeah. far as my progression of being able to diagnose. So, mm-hmm. It was kind of the key for the lock for you. Pretty much, yeah. That's pretty sweet. Because, I mean, I'm, I I tell everybody all the time, I'm not a scope guy, right? Like, I don't. I own one. I own a Snap-on Zeus, but I don't use it. I'm not. I'm, I, I kind of understand how to use it, but I always just seem to find another way, right? Instead of uh, grabbing it. And... At my job, my, my current job, I don't t- tend to get a whole lot of exposure to too much diag anymore. I mean, I still do it, but I mean, it's ignition misfires, right? And stuff like that. And, you know, oh, so yeah. I don't, uh, it, we work on a lot of Fords and a lot of stuff that we don't have to, it's faster still to just yank the coil and stick it in another hole, right? Than to go and grab the, the scope. And I mean, it'd be nice to go and just spend time with it, but, um, uh, you know, my boss is always like the faster you can get it diagnosed, the, you know, the happier they are. Right. That's typical. So, I mean, you know, if it, if it, you know, if it was a situation we had one, that was buried under an intake, they'd be cool with it if it was, but I can't say that I've had one come in like that yet. You know, everything's been pretty yeah. like we work on a lot of Ford, so it's pretty easy to get them out. So, you know, move them around. Well, it's, it's definitely one of those things where like, you just need to have it just always available. So I got pretty good with, I got a, a Varus Edge. So I got yeah. pretty good about just always having at least one set of leads with me for whatever reason. Yeah. So it, it you get really fast at it as long as you have the stuff available to you quickly. So like when I was in a shop, I always had my Pico set up on a basically a diet cart with my laptop and everything. All my leads were already there. So, you know, it'd take you a minute to swap a cool. Well, it takes me a minute to stick a probe on it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I for sure understand what you're saying. So the independent, what was it like? Um, 
they've worked on all makes all models. Oh yeah. It yeah. didn't matter. Yeah. My <laughs> first first week was a rough one. Uh-huh. I had um is a mid nineties, I think, Chevy uh four fifty four truck. Okay. So the old throttle body injected truck yep. had a uh, misfire on number one. Let's see. I think it was low compression, if I remember right. I don't think it had any leak down issues. I think it was just low compression. I can't I can't remember. It may have leaked down. But uh man, I fought that thing for at least a week and uh the guy was super, super cheap. He didn't want to spend any money on it. We he's like just whatever it takes, fix it as cheap as possible. And what I ended up finding was uh, the valve seat had actually like sunk him okay. up in the head some more. Yeah. So uh, I ended up having to put a spacer under the spring in the rocker arm, if I remember right, to basically raise the rocker arm up off of it or something like that. I, I can't really remember it's it's been a while. I know I had to do some janky stuff to it to get it get it to run right, but because I mean, he didn't want, he to, didn't want to pay, yeah, he didn't want to have the head pulled off and have the valve seat fixed. So he's he's like, whatever it takes. So that's, that's what he got, and he was tickled about it. He was happy. <laughs> he was. He was. He was happy about it. I was like, I'm like I don't know how long it's gonna last, man. I mean, it might last a week. It might last, you know. 10 more years, but yeah, you know, yeah. People are weird. Like definitely that. not love, a highlight of my career. <laughs> I love that line. Eh? They say whatever it takes, but don't do it as cheap as possible. Like the two, the two, it's such a contradiction, yeah. whatever it takes it but is. As as possible. Well, whatever yeah. it takes is normally not cheap. Like, <laughs> I mean, the, the ironic thing about that whole situation was it was actually a really good learning experience though, because, I think it was like a month later I had to put a, a Ford five, four motor in um, mm-hmm. and an F-150 and it was a used motor that we'd got, but it was actually a Jasper motor. Like okay. We knew what truck the truck was totaled that it was in and it was a Jasper motor. So we put it in there and crank ran, but it had a tap and we, I was like, well, we don't know if it was there for sure before or not, but ended up finding out that um, one of the rocker arms in the lifter was tapping, and it, you would think it was is a three valve, so you'd think it was probably the, mm-hmm. the follower, you know, the bearing collapsing, but it wasn't. I put one in it. I even put a new lifter in it. Still had the same tab on the same cylinder. Still had a valve clearance tap, basically. Yep. And... I ended up miking the hole the lifter was in, and that lifter hole was actually slightly deeper than all the other ones. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up cutting out a brass shim and putting under that and fixed that one. Bring it back up. <laughs> yeah. It's cra- just random, crazy, weird stuff. But The stuff he sees from Jasper eh, is weird. Like everybody. I know. They- They've got their reputation honest. They come by it honestly because I, they, it's just, I don't know what happens. I'm not ripping on them. 
we don't get them up here in Canada, right? But I mean, I've talked to so many people that either like will use them or so many people that have like nightmare stories about Jasper. And they're just like, I'll never, never, ever, ever, ever again, you know? So, yeah. yeah. I don't know whether they. Sometimes you get lucky with them and then sometimes they're just nightmares. Yeah. Don't know why. What? That shop was it? Was it? It doesn't sound like it sounds like other than the learning, it wasn't necessarily the the kind of independent shops that we we hear about by some of the people in the groups, right? That run a, a really good, you know, uh, ups upper class clientele. I guess is maybe what I'm trying to say. You sound like that's some older older rundown iron coming. Well, up a lot. the the people are super nice mm-hmm. and. That's kind of their detriment. Yeah. Super nice. They always want to help. You know, they were definitely one of those people that, what has Lewis put it, uh, supplements their yes. repairs. Yeah. You know, I, however it is, he says that they were that people, you know, emotionally dis- car come in with some kind of issue. If you let the owner talk to him about it, more than likely they got it for dirt cheap. Yeah. So, it was one of those things like where you try to keep him away from the people mm-hmm. and, but yeah, it, I mean, it was good. They kind of hit some growing pains. Basically, whenever I got there, we, they started growing, getting a lot more higher end work mm-hmm. because I could figure it out and fix yeah. it. Yep. And one of the, the local wholesale dealers that started bringing cars to us started bringing a ton of European stuff, a lot of Volkswagens and BMWs and things like that. And that was all stuff that he wanted no part of. He was, he was completely fine with working on like the older 2000 model, you know, Chevys and Fords and stuff like that. He, he didn't, he couldn't really pick up on any of the newer stuff, anything 2015 and up. He's, you know, a lot of electrical, you know, whatever wasn't his forte. So I'd planned that. And they had known for several months that I would already planned to go out to Colorado for the summer last Mm -hmm. year. And pretty much, I guess whenever I left, things just kind of fell apart for them. And they were, they were just like, you know, his husband and wife kind of thing. And they were just like, you know, Let's just be done with it. Yeah. So had they been a long established business before you got there or were they kind of relatively new to the game as well? Still relatively new. Yeah. He had done some stuff, side work stuff at his house for a while. Mm -hmm. And then I think they'd only had that shop, the actual shop for maybe a year before I got there, I think. So. Right. And they just decided without the your skill set they were just going to let it go yeah because we had we had added a couple tech so basically at one point i had transitioned from basically figuring cars out and fixing them to just figuring cars out and then other people doing the labor part of it yeah and then once i was gone like they were just kind of left like what do we do Mm-hmm. Kind of. It's a, that's an interesting um, 
because we we hear talk about like different people running shops different ways and they're talking about and i know like way back when i heard about the dealer that i worked at before i started there they tried that for a very short period of time where they had a couple techs do all the diag and then just get other people to install the parts well it sounded good until either one of those techs left or went on vacation and if you had one quit and the other one go on vacation at the same time, everything kind of reverted back to the way that it had always been, which was a lot of comebacks and a lot of rework because they, you know, that was, they obviously brought the change in for a reason. Yeah. They couldn't implement it. And then I've seen it in other shops where those people that do all the diag, they really start to kind of like get their hooks into them and start to really, you know, demand, not that I'm against that, demand top pay and you know really cushy conditions right and um yeah i i think it's i think it's you you limit your business if you set it up that way i think in a perfect world everybody would be you know equally skilled and it'd be like the military right one person could step out of this role and somebody else could you know step in the line pick up their rifle and keep on going down the, the trail right yeah, it, it it doesn't always work that way, but I think when we get to where you got a guy that's like yourself that's doing all the diag and then handing the cars off, well, you go on vacation and everything grinds to a halt. So you know you got to have them. People should be bring, bringing the other people up all the time to to. Yeah, and I was, I was always trying to get them to learn how to diagnose cars. Mm-hmm. They just really didn't care yeah they wanted to be parts changers that's all they wanted to be like yeah you know tell me what to do yeah why do you think that is jake why does it that seems to be the the predominant attitude of so many in the industry that they just want to hang parts why is it just because financially it's it's we're not incentivizing the the diag side of it enough or i don't think so because when when I went to that role, mm-hmm. wasn't even my ideas, my the owner's idea to change my pay. Yeah, I went from being flat rate, which I made really good money flat rate there, because you know I was basically the only person that could diag and fix the cars, do it pretty fast. So, so I made pretty good. They always paid me a really good percentage of the labor. So, but whenever they, whenever we kind of talked about me going away from fixing cars and just diagnosing, uh, they wanted me to be salary plus a a commission, plus a flat rate, basically. I was like, well, you know, I don't, I'm fine with just doing the salary, you know, keep, keep that extra commission, put it back in, you know, cause we're growing, we're, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to grow and expand so i basically just you know was like you know just pay me this salary and crazy thing is is like the salary was a pay cut yeah from my flat rate hours but i was fine with it it was more than enough for me to live on Mm -hmm. but i was making more money still than the guys hanging the parts yeah like because just because they they wouldn't turn the hours so it's like so I, I really don't understand what their mentality was, but I feel like a lot of people don't want to necessarily 
learn the diagnostics because they find it easier just to hang the parts. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I, I don't know. I've never been that. I, I've always hated hanging parts. Yeah. So. yeah. I, and that's, I, I find that too. Like, I mean, I get, I'm good at both, but I mean, I, I'm much more interested in, in the why, right. Than the, than the, yeah. okay. So somebody else diagnosed the fuel pump. I put the fuel pump in the car runs and goes out the door. Cool. Right on. Great. You know, I, that's fine until, you know, there's no fuel pumps to change. And then what do I do? Right. Like, whereas there's somebody that always seemed to be, that's what I found at the dealer. The steady work was always either like a transmission or like an electrical problem. That was always when, when there was no brake promotions running, when there was no, you know, when you got all the tie rods done and all the struts done and everything else, and there was just no work, there was always something towed in or something not running right. And that was why I was like, okay, like, I'm not the fastest tech in the world, but what I want is steady work. So let's take a kick at doing diag. And I think that's what more people need to realize is that, you know, that other work is only, it's eventually going to go away. I mean, yes, we're always going to need parts changed, but this, the, the breakdown, I think, in the bays happening now is we're seeing more and more cars that need diag before we can, and more diag done before we know what part to put in. And then the, the programming yeah. and the and the calibrations after, it's becoming, I mean, this, you know. It's definitely going that way. I mean, you can already see that, you know, eventually they're trying to get away from ice engines all, all together. You know, so, you know, wh- where are you going? It's yeah. it's electrical. Like, yeah. you know, there, yeah, there's still going to be parts to be replaced, but those parts are going to be electrical parts. Yeah. So, so it only makes sense to, to learn it, figure it out and, you know, just go ahead and go that direction. Like learn the electrical. Yeah. So. Like, I mean, even look at now what you have to do when you put a suspension piece in. Just the alignment steps involved, the ADAS, the calibration mm-hmm. of, say, it's got, you know, ride sensors for an air suspension or something like that. That's all stuff that, like, a lot of guys that are like, oh, I can throw that air strut in. Cool. You know, make it work after the fact. Oh, I don't know how to do that. Well, then I might as well get somebody like yourself who can throw the strut in and do the calibration after and the all the program. I might as well just employ all those guys, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where this industry is going to have to eventually move to is realizing that like you know you can't keep you can't fill up the shop with multiple people and hope that everybody can do a little bit of everything and you make it work somehow as it goes to where it's more and more specialized you need to find one person that is really good then you need to find another one that's almost their mirror copy or you got to bring some people in and train them mentor them up so they become your mirror copy and I think that's how you, you know, you really stay ahead of the, of the impending curve, I guess is how I would say it. But yeah, it's sad yeah. though that you're, you're, their shop closed. What, what happened to, do you know what happened to that couple? Did he go back to work for somebody else's just attacker? She, so she, her dad had started another shop in kind of like the next town over. Mm-hmm. So she kind of went there to help him with office stuff and whatnot. And then he kind of worked there sometimes part-time 
just kind of off and on. Yeah. Um, but he went back to working at another place that he worked at before, basically. Yeah. So sad. We see that happen a lot. It's, um, you know, no, no ill will for those people, but I mean, I think that's what I, I enjoy about the ASAW group and the changing the industry group is that because you're seeing so many people, I think we're preventing more of that happening. I think a lot of the people that five years ago would have thought, screw this, I'm going to go start my own. I think when we have so many people in there that are telling them their stories about how they started their own and how mm-hmm. difficult it was, I think it's keeping some people from realizing that, like, don't jump out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Stay stay where you are until yeah. you can really, you know, build yourself to where it's you're ready for that next step. You know, it's, yeah, I, I'm glad I never made the move. I thought quite strongly about it 10 years ago. And then I was just like, no, the overhead to start it would, you know, kill me. So, and mobile up here is like, nobody's doing it. It's pretty much an untapped market, but, uh, really six months of the year, you're, you're freezing. It's too brutal. Yeah. The weather doesn't quite. I wouldn't be able to handle the, the weather. So no. And I mean, there's not enough of like around here, there's not enough of the demand for somebody that just would go and do Diagra programming, right? Like they would, if you're going to be mobile here, you'd be like doing anything and everything under the car, on the car. You might do some programming. You might do, there's one guy that, and that I know of, and I don't even know if he's still in business or not, but he like, he's predominantly not doing Diag. He's showing up and, putting control arms in or struts in or tie rods or tires or brakes or whatever. And like, I've seen some footage of him in the wintertime and it's like, man, you couldn't pay me enough to do that. Go dig, no. shovel the snow out in front of the car, jack the car up and sw- switch the tires. No pass hard pass. Yeah. So no. yeah. But what's, uh, what's, what's the, the end game for you? Oh man, that's a that's a tricky one. <laughs> <laughs> Parts of me would like to transition one day into a brick and mortar shop, but around here it's so hard to really find people you can trust to work on cars. Right. You know, it's so I I couldn't do it and be profitable by myself. I would have to have people working and I just don't at this time see finding those people. Mm -hmm. So kind of a a secondary plan or kind of a, a wish basically would actually be for the channel, my YouTube channel to just, kind of take off to a point to where it could sustain me. Right. And so my girlfriend, she does travel tech work for hospitals. Okay. Doing imagery. So she gets travel to cities for, you know, three months at a time or whatever. And so ideally I wish the channel could be good enough to where I could travel with her. And I could go to local shops and have enough recognition to where I could be like, hey, this is me. Do you have any cars here? I could just 
shoot yeah. videos on. Right. And at the same time, also be able to show them kind of my process or techniques or whatever like that. So they can kind of get kind of like almost like an in-person training kind of thing where they can kind of learn how to figure out this car that they're having trouble with. Mm -hmm. They get diagnosis out of it and I get content. Yeah. But that's probably still years down the road probably it's a it's so. a it's a it's an it's an interesting goal though i've never heard anybody come up with that exact idea that they would move around from city to city right and i mean there's, yeah. there's like you said there's a lot of like we talked about there's a lot of people shooting content you know and there's some there is yeah but there's there's also how many shops in every city that are throwing parts at things because they don't really know how to figure them out mm-hmm you know, it's it's not like it would be that hard to find shops to help. Yeah. It's just I would need kind of that recognition of them going, okay, this guy's serious, and then let me do my thing. And then, like I say, the, the channel be able to make enough revenue for me to live off of. Mm-hmm. So, so. When, when you talk about shops throwing parts at, at vehicles, let me let me ask you this. Do you think they're doing it because so it's, do you think they're doing it because they don't have the 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 talent in the bay to do the diag or do you think they're doing it because the customer is coming in and there's a reluctance to pay it the diag? Which um, is the I definitely think it's factor. both. Yeah. It's definitely both. I think customers for too long have been kind of trained to think that a diagnosis is the same thing they get a part store where they get their check engine light scanned you know so when they bring it to a shop they're like i hear it all the time you know you're going to charge me this much money to tell me what the codes are yeah no (laughs) i'm charging you to test yeah what the codes say they are to prove what's causing that and they don't really understand. Mm-hmm. Like I've kind of here recently, you know, I get a lot more just random people call me that other shops had referred to them to me or whatever, give them my business card. And none of them have complained at all about my price or anything right. like that. But they've already kind of, been through that whole thing of like, well, I threw parts at it, didn't fix it, you know, and then they this a shop says, you need to talk to this guy. This guy will come figure out what's wrong. Yep. So trying to get that to the mass of people, the, the general public is almost impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, once they've kind of went through this and learned the hard way, they kind of get it and then they're okay with it. Right. But, you know, the people that, well, I went to a part store and it said my oxygen sensor was bad and I threw an oxygen sensor and it fixed it. They think well, that's what it is. That's how diagnosis mm-hmm. works. So when they go to a shop, that's kind of what they're expecting. And sadly, a lot of shops do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because I don't, 
I don't genuinely believe that like every, I mean, I know that we as a collective in the industry, tech, tech wise, we can all bring our skills up, right? We can all improve. There's room for all of us to improve. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I genuinely feel like there's a lot of people out there that are, are chucking parts in cars because they're not getting paid to do the t- testing to, to prove that the part is bad. You know, think about like, uh, you know, anybody from our days in the dealership, right? You got like four tenths, five tenths, six tenths to, you know, was your initial diag a lot of the time, right? For, for check engine light. And oh yeah, it's an oxygen sensor code. So, you know, you know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Pattern failure, go back to it, you put it in, right? And then I mean, it, that's even the same thing with warranty, like with yeah. GM for the longest, like your diag was three tenths. I mean, just, just think about that. Three tenths is 18 minutes. Yep. You tell me I have 18 minutes to figure out what is causing this intermittent misfire. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So, I yep. mean, there was a lots of times where customer would bring a car into us and I'd get the ticket and they'd say it's a intermittent you know, whatever problem. Well, I have to look at that ticket and go, I've got 18 minutes to figure out something with this car. Yeah. So a lot of times 18 minutes is just going to be eat up on a quick test drive around the block. Yeah. You know, when I get back, if I still have nothing, what am I supposed to do with that? Right. So, I've had cars under take GM. 12 minutes to find in the parking lot. You know, I know, right? It's, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's parked at the bank parking lot next door. Sorry, we were supposed to tell you that, but it was, you know, it was a night drop and the, and the gate was closed, so it's dropped over at the, the next door parking lot. Like, thanks, I just yeah. parked a lot for 20 minutes looking for this car. Great. <laughs> it's my time gone. But sorry, yeah. go ahead. So you were saying. But so GM actually has a, a warranty claim code called CCND. Customer concern not duplicated. Mm-hmm. It's three tenths. Okay, I shipped. I've in my career, I probably shipped a hundred cars under CCND. Yeah, and it was to the point where my service manager at one time was like, "You know, you really can't be doing this all the time." I'm like, "Bullshit! I can't. Mm-hmm. I've got 18 minutes to figure out something. If I can't figure out something, I'm still getting my 18 minutes." Yeah. Whether I file it under CCND or something else, I'm getting it. Yeah. And he's like, well, sometimes you just need to put a part on it. I'm like, no, because GM then says if you put a part on it, you have admitted something is wrong with the car. Exactly. Yeah. And whether or not you put a part on it or not doesn't change the fact that the car is not fixed. Yeah. You know, you might get really, really lucky. But more or less, you're telling me to put a part on it that might fix it, but highly probably won't. Yeah. But we've now admitted something is wrong with the car. I struggle with that so much at the dealer because like, and it was always that way. Customers would be like, well, it just does this or it just does that. And you try to tell them, well, that, that little idle flare when it's cold is normal. Well, you know, I... I the last car I drove, it didn't do that. It was the last car I drove exactly the same as this car. No, it was a Honda. Okay. I mean, you know, so then it's like you said, so as soon as you say, okay, well, well 
you know, you'd have an advisor that's like, well, let's put a throttle body on it, right, right. Or, or something like that. Well, you just, like you said, you just admitted now, and now mm-hmm. the paper trail starts that you admitted there's something wrong with the car. Until finally, mm-hmm. you know, what rectified it a lot is you'd give her another one, a loaner, and she'd take it home and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you fix that? And then, she, and then she comes back and says, this car is broke too. Yeah. Well, yes, but the, what we'd always say, so we didn't have CCND. We had um, NFF, no fault found. And NFF paid nothing. But I mean, so we would go out and if you spend three tenths on it or whatever, NFF. And that was, you know, they didn't like it, but we like, we, I'm the same as you. I shipped hundreds of cars that way, NFF, because mm-hmm. it wasn't broken, you know, but it, it drove the customer nuts. That's how your CSI goes in the toilet is because if you have the oh, advisor yeah. that doesn't always wants to side with the customer go, Oh, I don't know what's wrong with them. I just don't know why they can't fix your car. Like there must, they're, you know, they must be mm-hmm. stupid or something. I don't understand. It's like the car is not broke, man. The car is not broke. They all do that. Well, what's going to fix it? Well, maybe software later, but I can't write another program for your idle, you know, RPM minus 40. I can't write it. Yeah. The engineering might and, and send it and then I can put it in. But I don't have that right now. I can't fix your car because your car is not broken. It's not like it's not running. It's just making a funny noise or like idling unstable when it's minus 40 out and you go out and you turn all your electrical loads on all at once and it kicks up the idle to, you know, stay running. That was literally the kind of complaints you get. And it was just like as soon we had a couple of visors and they were just like, Customer's always right. Customer's always right. So you'd start that paper trail. If you and it just looked like a parts cannon had been fired at this car, and it was perfectly mm-hmm. normal. And then that's when the auditors want to come and start to have a talk with you. But why are you putting? Why is the tax putting parts on that aren't fixing cars? Well, because they're getting dispatch stuff that isn't broken, and the need to get paid, so they put a part on. Seems pretty simple, yep. right? You know, because they're yep. not paying them for NFF. Yeah. That's why I'm so, you know, I thought when I got out of the dealership and got to an independent, and that, I mean, I'm hourly, so it's the same thing. But when people start talking about production, you know, and you and you spend some time to to do that kind of, those kind of jobs or those kind of inspections and it's nothing wrong cars the way it's supposed to be you can't duplicate it and they don't pay your tech you don't even track the time that they spend trying to duplicate the the intermittence that's when you really go away from the idea that everybody should be incentivized because i mean look at paul danner's video he put up a couple months ago he talks about like he'll tell you he's one of the smartest guys don't chase intermittence they'll kill you they'll kill your business right they just they will they don't you know and it's a pride thing. I get it. You guys that go around and it's like, how many times do you want to call back, you know, get called back to one of your shops? Cause it's an intermittent, but I mean, you got to put your foot down and say, I'm going to, if you call me in, I'm going to charge it. And if it doesn't mm-hmm. act up, you can call me again. I'm going to charge you again. You know, like you have to, you got to cover your time. Right. It's just, Absolutely. It's yeah. No different than a tech in a, in a bay. He, you have to cover the time. So I, uh, I think text too many times they get blamed for this. Uh, you know, we talk about it sometimes. They talk about how well techs are overselling themselves. I mean, 
like as an example, you talked about when you came out of the dealership and then you went into the independent side, you thought you were probably pretty competent. You know, you were thought you were going to do really good on Diag when you got into the independent shop. And then you said you found all these, these training aids and this different way of, of, you know, approaching it processes and stuff like that. Did you think that you oversold yourself to that employer? No, not really. No. I've always kind of been a little more, I guess, humble or realistic. Right. So I basically went in and him knowing that, hey, anything 2014, 15 and up Chevy product, I'm your guy. Anything else, you know, it's going to take me a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, you know, the other guy I got working here, he's pretty slow. So, I mean, if you can do what he's doing, it's fine. Yeah. So, so it wasn't the, the bar wasn't very high, (laughs) you know? And I think the first two weeks I was there, I'd done more than what the other guy there had done in a whole month or two. So, so, I mean, they were, they were tickled to death about my productivity and stuff like that. But, but yeah, like once we started getting into some of these other cars that were harder to figure out and it would take me a little bit more time for him, it was like, I would have never figured that out. Yeah. You know, so it was still fine. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I, Cause that's what, what, like I say it all the time, people need to remember if you're hiring a former dealer tech, they're either going to be really confident about what they can do. Or they're going to be, I think, like you said, they're going to be, they might even undersell themselves. And you got to remember, like, if, if when I came out of the dealership environment, I thought I was really good, you know, and then I got handed a different brand and I had to start at the beginning of the, you know, of the, of the thing all over again. And yeah. um, it didn't mean that I couldn't fix it. It's just like, I wasn't going to rattle it off with in three tenths from familiarity, right? There was no pattern failure. You know, there's pattern failure in Identifix, but I don't use Identifix like that where it's, you know, grab the top part and jam it in, right? I mean, even though that does work, I mean, if anybody says that it doesn't, they're a liar. Like, there's so many techs that use Identifix and it works for them, but that's not doing Diag. So, you know, I asked Cody, uh, Cody Gotti an interesting question. I wanted to ask you too, and I was thinking about it. Sometimes we talk that the mobile guys are are like their ability to go to some shops and and solve these problem cars for these you know shops that maybe aren't really tooled up or trained up. Are they enabling them to stay maybe in the business when they shouldn't be? That's a definite yes and a definite no. Okay. There's not a whole lot of gray in between there. I've got I've got one shop that I go to pretty regularly. Phenomenal shop. Like they're one of the better ones in my area. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I go and it's something fairly simple, like just a missing fuse. Right. You know? But the problem when it presents itself to them at face value seems complicated. Right. So to them, it's like, you know, We've got all this other work. Call Jake. 
just tell them to come figure this out and pay them. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. So they call me. I come in. I figure it out. And I'm like, oh, well, it's a fuse. You know, they're like, cool. Here's your money. Whatever. Yeah. Yep. And then I've got another shop that's kind of the opposite. We've checked this. We've checked this. We've checked this. We've checked this. You know, we can't figure out what's wrong with it. And I check it and a fuse is missing. Mm-hmm. And then I tell them that a fuse is missing. And they're like, what do you mean? We checked all the fuses. I mean, you probably checked the ones that were there. Yeah. This one was not there. Right. So, I mean, part of that is still, though, they're so stretched thin with so much other work. You know, they they can't put a whole lot of effort into it. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely both sides. Yeah. Some shops, it's purely convenience to them. They appreciate it and they, you know, freeze them up to do some more, I guess, higher paying jobs that mm-hmm. they've got sitting around. Whereas some other shops, uh, they probably shouldn't even be checking the cars that they've got. Right. They should be paying somebody like me to come in and do it for them. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's both ways. It really is. The missing fuse thing always amazes me because it's like, you see it happen so much. Like even, I don't know if you follow, um, check engine Chuck on TikTok, but he, uh, talked about, he was at a shop and they said they had several hours into it, several days into something. And I think it wouldn't even start. Uh, I want to say it might've been a Ford or something like that. And it's, it was a transit. And there was a missing fuse. And I'm like, yeah. I'm dumbfounded because I'm like, so you, they had hours into this thing. But can they not read the wiring diagram? Because the wiring diagram should show you that there, it goes through a fuse, you know? Yeah. And I don't know how these shops, what their process is. If they say I have hours into this, days into this. When you walk oh, not in, not only that, but we've put parts on this. Yeah, well, that's it, right? <laughs> yeah, like I could see it almost if it's like, well, we get there because we don't have a service information system. Like I could almost see that where it's like, well, we got a code reader, maybe we even got a scan tool, but you know, like I, I, like you know, I Google all my wiring diagrams or I Google my. I mean, at this point, if you don't have service information. You definitely shouldn't be right having a shop. Yeah. Like, I mean, even for something as simple as, you know, swapping motors. Yeah. Like, service information helps tremendously with that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. Why? Well, I just, it, it blows my mind to hear about shops that do not have service information at all. Yeah. And I mean, they're still out wow. there, though. They're still out they there. They are. Yeah. I mean, I, I think also- I think uh, Pro Demand is probably one of the cheaper ones. I think it's like one hundred and seventy five dollars a month or something like yeah. that. I mean, realistically, that's one or two cars. Yeah, you you work on one or two cars, it, it pays for your yeah for your software, your your service information right there. Like, it's, it's, I mean, it's no brainer. Yeah, I that's the only excuse I could come up with for why these guys get slid on a missing fuse is they don't. But I mean, I think it's just like they don't. I don't know. 
I don't know the process. I'd love to know. I keep saying I want to ride around with a mobile guy someday, like just for a couple of days, just to get to some of these shops and see it, just to see what's it look like. Oh, when yeah. you, you know, cause it's, it's almost a, a running joke with me and my girlfriend. Cause like, she, I, I tell her about my day all the time, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And, uh, I, she always is hearing I replaced a fuse. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's like, you know, I'm just going to come work for you and I'll, I'll be your, your fuse person. I'll just find all the fuses that are missing. Yeah. I'm like, I could probably pay you pretty good money just off the fuses that I find. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a running thing now. Like anytime I get a fuse missing or something, I'll text her a picture of it. And she's just like, Ooh, money. <laughs> <laughs> she knows so, she knows it, it's yeah it's one thing when it's blown right we all that's the, the eureka moment it's like oh okay the fuse is open cool but when it's like it's yeah. not even there how it's not even there what happened like how did this <laughs> I, I get it with auction cars because like you're saying with auction cars we all know sometimes at the auction they'll bug them you know they'll pull stuff out of them or whatever to to bring mm-hmm. the price down right they won't it's a non-runner blah 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 but mm-hmm. I mean, I'm always amazed at the customer stuff because I'm pretty sure if you interrogated them enough and it's like somebody pulled the fuse out, what happened? Well, we were sitting there and, and the kids were plugged into the cigarette lighter and then, you know, something shorted and we pulled the fuse out of this, put it back in the cigarette lighter so they could go, you know, keep playing on their laptop or charging the laptop. And then the car didn't start and we had it towed. That's pretty good information. I think if you spent like a couple minutes interrogating the customer, you would probably get that. But we know that those cars sometimes sit at a shop for two, three days, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody bothers to get the rest of the story is um, that famous radio. I think it was Charlie Harvey or somebody used to say that always made me laugh because I'd see like I've seen some weird stuff when I got bought at auction and came into the dealer on the used lot. The same thing, missing fuses. But the stuff that comes in off the road and the fuse is missing. It's just like, I'm like, how does that happen? You know? Yeah. Like, it's been probably two years ago now, at least. There was a guy when I was at the independent shop, had his F-150 towed into the shop for, uh, supposedly, his story was, it died while driving down the road. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, he tows it to the shop, and I'm doing my basic, fuse checks and I go through all the fuses all the fuses are good and I go through it again and my issue that I had was no calm with the PCM right so then I'm like looking at the diagram working it backwards I'm like well this should have power from this fuse well I've got no power from that fuse so I go back and look well that fuse is missing it's just gone it's 20 amp fuse just gone mm-hmm. and I'm like how did this thing drive and then stall going down the road <laughs> with a fuse missing. Like, how is that possible? Yeah. So I put a fuse in it. It cranks right up, runs perfectly fine. So I called him and uh, I even asked him, I was like, did anybody mess with the fuses? Like after it stalled, because I wanted to make sure he didn't have another issue. Yeah. So I'm like, after it stalled, did anybody mess with the fuses or anything like that? He's like, no, nobody touched it. It got hauled straight to you. I'm like, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. It was not driving. And then get towed to me with this fuse missing. Like, how did... 
just blew my mind and I never got any other answer other than, yep, it got towed straight to you. I don't know. Nobody messed with it. You know, you know who I blame in those? I blame the tow truck drivers. I've seen tow truck drivers that like try to get, you know, when they get called out to a job and I think they think they're going to be helping the customer or something and they, you know, they go to here and they pull the fuse box up and they look in here and blah, 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 and then, you know, move some stuff, pull one out. You know how it goes, right? They pull it out, look at it. Oh, it's not blown. Put it back in. Yeah. Put it back in the right spot. I, I mean, maybe. I Could be in, could have been tow truck driver. I don't know. Yeah. But that's it. I, I that's- drove that thing around like, the rest of that day, any errands that needed to run for the shop, yeah. somebody was driving that truck to make sure it wouldn't stall again. Yeah. Never would. So. I, had, I had a Chevy eight months ago that it, after I had an engine put in it, the camshaft went crappy. It was probably like a 2010 Silverado or something like that. 2008, mm-hmm. maybe older one, right? When the cams would go bad. And they swapped the engine. Well, and then sold it at this really shady used car lot. That thing then had these multiple issues after that forever. And uh, this guy, the customer, had never been to the shop before. And he um, said, oh, I got this issue. So he had a neighbor whose son was a mechanic, some kind of mechanic. And they would work on it. And they put a fuse box in this. They put a fuel pump in it. All, you know, probably online eBay parts or whatever. And it would never rectify it. It sat there, didn't run for like four months. So he finally, he calls me up and he's like, a friend of ours, he said, referred, said that you work at this shop and you're pretty good at that kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, immediately, like, I don't know if I want to do this kind of job, right? Because I'm like, yeah, bring the truck in. So he brings the truck in and uh, we push it in and it. It was end up being the ground that goes on the driver's side. Was, I can't remember the ground number, but it's on the driver's side engine block down underneath the in front of the engine mount underneath the exhaust manifold was loose. Mm-hmm. Somebody done the engine right. It's just sitting there, yep. bolt because you yep. can wiggle that harness and the throttle body would come alive. Right, you hear it all click and everything, and you could see it sparking. Cool. So I tightened that. You know, took that ground off, cleaned the ground, put it back on. Well, I drove that truck. 200 kilometers, almost 200 kilometers in the next probably couple days off and on. Same thing. We drive it all around. It was a pretty slow week. So I just jump in the truck and he like, it, it came with a full tank of gas and I drove easily. I burned a half a tank of gas driving that truck around. Never got it to act up again. No codes came back. The thing idled great. He took the truck home and he called me four days later and he says, um, the truck's dead downtown. He says, I can't, it's doing the, doing the exact same thing, he says. I'm like, what do you mean it's doing the exact same thing? Oh, it, uh, it's cranking and won't start. I'm like, well, when we had it, it wouldn't even crank. Like, you know, it's kind of a, not the same thing. And I said to him, I said, well, bring me the truck back and we'll take a look at it. I never saw him again. He never brought us the truck back. But that's what it always stresses me out with those kind of stuff that you think you you fixed it. Like you're, you're one of your time yeah. with a missing fuse. Sometimes you just never know, right? Those are the kind of ones that keep you up. And I, I wish that customer would like just call me and say, hey, this is what I did. I got rid of the truck or it caught on fire or, you know, I drove it off a cliff or parked it on some ice over the lake and it went in. Like any of that would be nice to know, right? The fact that I still to this day don't know drives me crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. Makes you, gives you white hair. So not, that's not a crack on you. It just gives me white hair. So. 
Oh, I know. I, I'm the same way. I, a couple of weeks ago, I had a little cobalt that I never got to act up how mm-hmm. they said it would act up. I even had a video of it. They showed me a video of it acting up. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it act up. But one of their issues was a uh, no crank sometimes randomly. And uh, they said, you know, if you stick your finger up through the bottom of the steering column, you push on this little thing, and it'll crank. I was like, okay, that's a little strange. And so whenever I got it, they towed it into me. It was actually no crank. Right. So I checked it and I had some theft codes in it. Looked at the theft module, like half the covers even missing off of it. You just see the, the raw circuit board. With the antenna ring, like just just under there, and that's what they were pushing on. They would push right. on the circuit board. Yep. And so once I got in there and got to looking, the antenna ring is not soldered to the board. It's just kind of a kind of a press fit kind of thing in into the board, and it was basically falling out. So the antenna ring wasn't making contact. So I basically just pushed the board up and I soldered everything to work couldn't move anymore mm-hmm. and got the car cranking, running, driving, whatever. And, but I drove that thing for, I think it was like 70 something miles. Never would act up how it would in the videos yeah. that they showed me. And I told him, I was like, I mean, I don't know if I've fixed this running issue, yeah. but I've definitely fixed your no start issue that you've been having also. Yeah. And, uh, that has been, that's been a couple of weeks and I, Thursday or Friday, I actually text them. I was like, you know, has the car been doing okay? Any act, acting up or anything like that? And he texts back and he's like, no, it's been perfect. Wow. So, so I mean, sometimes I just have to, I just have to know. So, so yeah. when you, when you go out to a call like that and they've got what is maybe multiple issues, do you have multiple, like, is that two separate? How do you approach it? Is that two separate diagnostic charges or or do you just kind of lump it into one well i don't i don't generally try to say well this is going to be one issue and this is going to be a separate issue Mm -hmm. until i've looked at it right because i mean you could have transmission issues yeah that are definitely just an engine related issue right 100 percent. yeah but they don't know like Mm -hmm. they go well, my check engine light's on and it does this. And then sometimes my transmission does this. Yeah. So I don't like to go, well, that's two separate issues. It's going to be two different service fees. Yeah. So I basically just approach everything now where it's like, hey, my service fee to come out and do a basic assessment of what your concern or concerns are mm-hmm. is this much. And that's just going to cover some basic testing and whatnot. Give me a direction of what I need to do. And then at that point, I can basically determine, okay, you got an issue over here. You got an issue over here. So which issue would you like addressed first or both? Yeah. So in closing, if you got, we see people talking more and more about techs that are leaving and going the mobile route. Do you have any words of advice for them? I would I would really probably advise probably against it. Really? But but it 
for you to do it mobile, like to be a, basically a sole proprietor or a single person LLC, whatever, however you want to, you know, set up your business, whatever. You've got to understand that, you know, if I go out and I charge this person two or three hundred dollars and fix their car, the two or three hundred dollars doesn't go in my pocket. Right. It goes in my business bank account that then has to pay for insurance, service, like service information, gas. Scan you know, tool subs. Yeah. Yeah. Scan tools. Yeah. Uh, any tooling. You know, there's there's a whole lot of cost that are associated with a business that most people that are entertaining the thought of going mobile don't understand. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, if you make five or $6,000 in a month, you know, sure. That sounds good until you realize that at least half of that's probably gone to other things that are business cost. Yeah. And it's like, like Lucas and David had said it on their podcast that, you know, if you're not paying for those things, you need to be. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure you've got everything in place to run it like a business. I mean, before I even started, you know, I, I had my LLC set up. I had a business license. I had insurance set up. I bought my van. It's got its own insurance. Um, service information i bought a separate cell phone for business yeah. only you know the startup alone was a lot of money mm -hmm. and even though yeah i had my tooling all this other stuff i didn't have yeah that i then had to get really fast so if you are self-driven self-motivated and understand that there's a lot to running a business, then sure, go for it. But if you're in a shop and you don't like your shop or whatever, and you think, well, I could be making a whole lot more money doing this on my own. No, you're not. Yeah. While I, I do make pretty good money doing it on my own, Back when I was flat rate in the independent shop, I made as much money, if not more money, and I didn't have to worry about anything. Yeah. So, I mean, just, just the thought of every three months, I've got to make a tax payment. Uh, that's pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. I mean, that alone is uh, yeah. pretty pretty intimidating for somebody that you know you've definitely got to have money knowledge you've got to be self-controlled with your money you've got to be able to stick that money in that business bank account and go that's business money and pay yourself you know a salary every yeah. week or whatever I, I mean that's pretty much what i do is every week on friday i just go make myself my my salary withdrawal and mm -hmm. Everything else stays in there. It's in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that could go either way, 
but I would say if you're just in a shop and you don't like the shop or whatever you think you could do better on your own, probably just look for a better shop. Right. Uh, unless, like I say, unless you are that self-controlled, self-motivated, um, you know, that then, you know, you could probably make a go at it and do pretty good oh. with it. Yeah. There's several, several of us that have. Sure. Yep. Did you ask Cody that question? I asked, uh, did I ask Cody that? Yeah. Um, no, I didn't ask him that. I should have. Oh, you should have. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, you should have. Uh, I think, <laughs> uh, well, actually, the question I did ask Cody, and I'll ask you, is he was unsure if he was going to make ASTE. Are you? Yeah, I'm already signed up. Hey, if you could do me a favor real quick and like, comment on, and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, set the podcast to automatically download every Tuesday morning. As always, I'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise, and I hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change. Thank you to my partners in the ASAR group and to the Change in the Industry podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.